hello. Wait, is that what I say? Yeah, I do say. <laughs> this show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your host, Swarasala. And this week, we're excited to be talking the populist message of The Last Jedi with special guest Anthony Bresnikan of Entertainment Weekly. If you ever wonder, how do I navigate the constant stream of BS Star Wars news that litters the internet <laughs> thanks to rumor mill websites, the answer is follow Anthony Bresnikan on Twitter at Bresnikan and follow his work surrounding Star Wars movies. He is like the premier journalist when it comes to following uh, news coming out of these studios in a really intellectually honest way. Uh, Swar, are you excited? This is going to be great. I'm extremely excited. I've been a fan of Anthony Bresnikan for years. I actually, yeah, I met him first in London Celebration. Really, really nice guy. And uh, he's super smart. He's super nuanced in his takes. He has great connections at Lucasfilm. And I have to say that all of the articles I was reading in the run-up to The Last Jedi from him at Entertainment Weekly nailed basically exactly with we were going to get with the film. There was nothing really, I mean, there were some speculations about theories, but really when he was interviewing the cast and Ryan Johnson, he was mainly focusing on the story they were telling and how they were going to develop their characters. And mm -hmm. um, like even Ray's parents, I remember there was one article, he was talking with Ryan Johnson and Ryan Johnson basically straight up said, yeah, Ray will find out who her parents are, but ultimately it's not going to be a big deal. Like that wasn't simply a deflection or anything. That was, basically what we got <laughs> yeah. well, and he's he's yeah. he's got a good a good sense of everything that's going on down there and um he levels with you and so today like just having him on is a, a real privilege for this show um very excited to see what he thinks about this topic the people's star wars populism in the last jedi but Suar first have you seen i can't believe we're talking about this but the <laughs> latest way in which star wars land and politics land has collided quite awkwardly yeah, I did see this. Uh, just Sto Stormy why? Daniels, everyone. Why? <laughs> the adult film star, the actress, <laughs> who has been spilling the beans this month on uh, sexual encounters with Donald Trump um, after the time that he was married to Melania before he was running for president. Um, this involves some like hush money before the campaign and everything um, from Trump world. But she tweeted um, some anger, some hate over at Ryan Johnson, the director of The Last Jedi. And then our guy, Mark Hamill, got involved. So I, I just Mark. <laughs> oh, his 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 is just poetry. So this this goes Stormy Daniels tweets at Ryan Johnson, F you, Ryan Johnson, to which Ryan Johnson uh, quote tweets her with starry eyed emoji. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan is the ultimate master at handling the trolls and even ones who had slept with our current president. That is never since I thought I would say about a Star Wars director. <laughs> and 
Trump. I mean, Trump just being president in general, like is something you can't, you could barely imagine a couple of years ago. And uh, it's really, it's, it's absurd. It's like really, I mean, we love love the combination of politics and Star Wars, but like this, I'm just like, (laughs) there's there's this is not the way that uh we usually see the intersection going but um that's where you have to enter in the ultimate star wars and politics chief uh mark hamill a very political actor himself and he just quote tweets ryan johnson's quote treat and says another satisfied customer (laughs) boom And that is a, yeah. a not so not so veiled um, subtweet of Donald Trump as the oh, other yes. <laughs> satisfied customer of Stormy Daniels. Uh, so, oh, it just yeah. uh, it was so funny. Very very rich uh, way this uh, this happened this week. Ultimately, I'll be honest. The only commentary I really care about about the Trump administration is from Mark Hamill. That's that, that's just me. A, a fine point. And with that, I think it is time to welcome on to the show and dive into our main segment for today, Star Wars Populism, um, Anthony Bresnikan of Entertainment Weekly. All right. And joining us now is Anthony Bresnikan of Entertainment Weekly. Anthony, welcome on to the show. Hey, it's awesome to be here. Today, we are going to be talking about The Last Jedi, which I'm sure you've had a couple conversations with on Star Wars <laughs> podcasts in the last couple of, uh, of weeks, I imagine. There's always another conversation to be had about The Last Jedi, I'm finding. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we try to uh, we try to mix it up and keep ours a little bit different from the rest of the pack here on Beltway Banthas. Um, I don't know how familiar you are, but we're a Star Wars and politics podcast. So that little third that third rail that everyone else tries to uh, to step around, we just try to talk about it head on. Gosh, um, I can't I can't imagine why you'd want to talk to me. <laughs> That's pretty uh, you much know, my entire Twitter feed is Star Wars and politics. <laughs> yeah, and, and that tends to be the case with uh, with all the true believers. So we're really excited and uh, very grateful to have you on today to talk about populism and The Last Jedi. Um, we're calling this episode The People's Star Wars. And so I guess to begin, uh, we have to talk about what is populism. Why were there so many pieces and hot takes and you know write-ups by by Star Wars writers and entertainment writers about the populism of the Last Jedi? So populism, how do you define it? Well, it's it's kind of tricky. Um, populism is as shifty kind of as Jello, and it's a political philosophy with a thousand faces and incarnations. We've seen it um, in American politics over the last about uh, 150 years, but it goes back much further than that. It's a majority philosophy and populism speaks to popular sentiment and it sort of rails against elites, corporations and governing classes. It's a style of politics within ideology and and by that I guess I mean it's a style of politicking and you can see it be applied to almost any political idea. Um, And that's why you have Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump both sort of wearing the media granted mantle of a populist insurgent. Um, So where does this term originate in US politics? Suara, you just kind of looked into this a little bit. Yeah, it uh, actually originated with the Populist Party of the 1890s. This was a party um, formed of Midwestern and Southern farmers and some labor unions that were denouncing the system that uh, like that produ- that took the fruits of the toil of the millions that are boldly stolen to build up on the colossal fortunes for a few. So, you know, and that we had the rumblings of what we have today with the top 1% taking from, you know, like the bottom or like 99%. And, you know, in a lot of ways that was 
the uh, prelude to what we would see maybe during the Great Depression and what they had to go yeah, through as well. And that, and that line there is directly from their party platform. Um, Anthony, I wanted to kick this over to you. When you hear um, the word populism, I kind of want to get a conversation started about how we all think about that word and, and the ways we react to it. What do you think about when you think about the word populism? Well, that's a word that really troubles me because I feel like there's fake populism and there's real populism. Uh, the fake populism would be uh, telling the, the the broader working class, the masses, uh, I'm here for you. You're being cheated. Uh, let's drain the swamp. And really, uh, you have no intention of doing that. You're stirring people up and getting them to support you. And, and, and it's a kind of bogus uh, pot stirring and, uh, and whipping up of the mob. And then I feel like the actual terms, like it, it sounds, uh, populism sounds like, well, you're for the people, right? You're for the population. And I think there is a genuine form of that, which, um, which I think can be really important and positive. You know, a lot of times there are, uh, there are situations in politics where it becomes too cliquish, too chummy, too insular. And uh, there's a class that a ruling class that is disregarding or taking uh, the population for granted. And that needs to be broken up and, and the people need to be represented. So I find it's a term that is really hard to, I don't like to use it because I feel like it is so frequently misused. You know, mm. there, there's talk of Donald Trump is a populist. Mm. He is absolutely not a populist. He appeals to people with fraud and lies but this is a man whose life is basically one big golden toilet bowl. He, is, he has risen to the level he's at by inheriting his wealth from his father and, and then cheating and scamming and grifting his way through life. So I don't see him as any kind of populist. I see him as a grifter. Right. Yeah, and I think I think that kind of like brings up the really interesting um, sort of fault lines in populism when you talk about specifically Donald Trump, because you know we sort of hear a whole lot about his biography um, in terms of resentment about you know there are different scales of wealthy, there are different scales of you know rich and upper class societies, and he never like fit in with polite society. Mm. Um, you know, if if you were kind of like an oil tycoon or industrialist, you look down on someone like a millionaire like Donald Trump as sort of like um, kind of like a reality TV star, like dirty money millionaire, right? Well, he's a scumbag. That's yeah, right. exactly. And it's, but- it has nothing to do with class because he actually comes from, you know, uh, his parents and all w- were accepted by the, the wealthy elites of New York City. It's just that Donald Trump himself is an ignorant scumbag. Yep. <laughs> not not fit for you know, polite society. You know what I mean? Like that, I, 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 it bothers me when people mm-hmm. are like, "Oh, well, he's an outsider. He's not wealth welcome among wealthy circles." That's because he's a cheat and a grifter. I mean, I, and I and I don't mean this to sound like I'm just throwing mud at at the man who happens to be president of the United States. <laughs> it's just sort of like his career has been built on 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 nothing but fraud, on image, on presenting himself as the stereotype of a rich guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, what I find interesting is that so many working people look at him as like, oh, well, he's a champion of ours. When this, when he's, he's, he's right up there with a rich uncle Pennybags from the Monopoly game. <laughs> it's like the, a sort of self-made image of a, of a, of a rich guy yeah. who, 
squeezes the poor and and you know a slumlord. In a lot of ways, people um, feel they can relate to him because. <laughs> It, they, he has made up this narrative of him like uh, just being a regular guy from New York. I say what the people think and it's really – but still just saying a certain things or uh, frankly like saying very sexist and racist stuff, which some Americans might – think and say as well, that does not make him one of you, you know, just because he has no filter. No. He, uh, he, he escalates the ugliness that people used to feel ashamed of and used to try to suppress in themselves. Well, I, you know, we all feel anger and resentment and we're all raised with a little bit of contempt, <laughs> you know, as human beings, we're born with that. And, uh, and he activates all of that and brings it to the surface. You know, I, I had a discussion with a guy from my hometown, a little town outside of Pittsburgh, uh, New Ken, Lower Borough, these these sort of old mill towns, um, and the guy owns a bar there. And back when Meryl Streep did her amazing speech criticizing Donald Trump at the at the when she got her Lifetime Achievement Award and said basically like this was a man who mocked a disabled person, and it made certain people stand up and cheer. She made them, she made his followers feel a little bit of shame just for a moment with her heartfelt speech. And uh, he was like, "Wow, Meryl Streep, this guy's like Meryl Streep's just an elitist. She's this rich, fancy actress." And I said, you know, having been on movie sets with Meryl Streep, who do you think spends more time hanging around union workers, <laughs> like face to face? Meryl Streep does, you know, she's around Teamsters and she's around fellow actors and she's around, she employs makeup people and um, costume designers and has like, she has basically like what I would consider a small business of being, Meryl Gummer runs the business of being Meryl Streep and she. Um, she employs a lot of people and she's very polite and friendly. And yeah, you see her when she's dressed up to the nines at some fancy event, but like who would have a drink at your bar, Donald Trump or Meryl Streep? If she was shooting on location, she, she'd pop into your place and have a drink, eat a sandwich. Would Donald Trump? Heck no, man. He'd turn up his nose. I, I don't I don't think that's true. This is the guy who can't be kept out of McDonald's and KFC on the campaign trail and yeah, but he doesn't to go to McDonald's. No, I mean but I, I don't I don't think that that's actually bar food. I'm talking about would he hang out at your establishment, you know? And this is a guy who um who likes who who I think feels such tremendous insecurity about himself and his status that he has to surround himself with gold spray painted garbage in order to make himself feel the trappings of wealth. Whereas, you know, most actors, you know, you know, they, 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 they're not people who came from money. You know what I mean? They're people who work their way up and they have money now. Uh, so I always find this idea of populism, like he's a man of the people, like, give me a break. This guy has done everything possible to build walls between himself and the people because he does not want to be one of those working class losers, you know, so-called. You know, I, in terms of like my perception of populism, um, to kind of round down this little bit of the show, I, I think of populism negatively 
it is a dangerous powder keg um, of envy and fear and resentment. And it brings out in many ways, both the best and the worst of human nature. Um, it has the potential to do good and the potential to do great harm. And populism is all about appealing in many ways to the id. And it's about the thunderous applause and less about making tough decisions, like kind of based in, in tough love and honesty when you're, when you're a leader and a president, like telling people the factories are going to close. That's the reality. And we have to build new ones and new industries. But on the other hand, populist sentiment gave us the country that we live in today that's free of a king. Like you can't really forget that either. And it's it's sort of at the core. It has this positive heart. And it's this idea that the government must be organized with the consent of the governed. That's kind of where you right. get the drain the swamp stuff. But it, it has such potential to go like, awry with like, pot, with majoritarian. Yeah, thought. like that that like that which democracy should be in and of itself. Like government for the governed and them all ultimately making the decisions with elected and representatives and these sort of officials. And the way I perceive populism, especially in the 2016 election, has been very much in the way that you view it, Stephen, as a sort of force that's been harnessed by um, certain individuals to further advance their political agenda, especially Donald Trump. Because, Anthony, I agree with you. Like, Trump him, in and of himself, like, absolutely really doesn't care about the people. He found... A very effective way of rallying uh, a conservative base to help prop them up through the uh, primaries and to really just, uh, yeah, rise to the top. And it's something that Republican elites couldn't really recognize because in a lot of ways they hadn't really uh, kept in touch with their own constituents and what they want. Like most Republicans today, honestly, are for universal health care. I think that that argument, for example, which split left and right so clearly before, I think we've reached a consensus on it. And I've also seen it, uh, you know, on the Democratic side, obviously, with Bernie Sanders and his sort of uh, rallying campaign and saying that we can get everything straight away. And while I definitely align far more with Bernie Sanders than I do someone like Donald Trump. I still saw Sanders as potentially like not dangerous, but like a little problematic. It's demagoguery. It's, it's, it's demagoguery right. in its own right. And the way like Bernie has become such a fixture on the left and despite how old he is and he's still like in the running, probably in the running to be a 2020 candidate. And it just doesn't seem practical. Like so much about Bernie is like idealism, but not practicality. And that's where that populist trap falls into of like making this immediate promise to uh, a their base of uh, Democrats or Republicans or what have you. But most often worldwide, when we see populism, especially in places like the Middle East and um, other uh, developing areas of the world, it's often used in a very, very negative way and is used basically to divide gr different groups of people. Mm -hmm. The way we see it manifest specifically during presidential elections, I think has been quite problematic and has led to further cleavages. Anthony, final word on this before we move on to Star Wars? I, I would, I would say, I do have one thing I want to add to this is that the, 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 uh, the blasting cap that makes populism very dangerous is, um, is the fact that, uh, Often it comes with demagoguery and a need to create a villain, right? Is it's not enough to say you are being ripped off, you are not being represented. It's these other people over here who are getting what you should be getting. And that always comes in the form of people who are actually getting far, far less and 
share common cause with the population at large. Yes, the large American working class is uh, is not being thought of and not being considered and not being well represented uh, by many representatives. But that doesn't mean that the refugee or the immigrant or the person of color is the one causing them their grief. And yet the pop the fake populist, the Donald Trump populist, needs to create a demon, needs to create a villain, because somebody has to get that anger and ire and blame. And that's where it becomes really scary. Right. Yeah, I think that's all true. And, you know, there's I can't think of a country in the world that uh, begins with the People's Republic of X that is actually a republic run uh, nope. by people and for the people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's just a line people use. But this is all to tee us up into why is The Last Jedi being called a populist movie? There are three kind of or two main points and we can kind of dissect them um, a little bit. So we, we have to talk about inherent inheritance. Um, privilege, family history, sort of like royalty, mm -hmm. and then also Canto Bite and the Rise of the Common Man. So, Anthony, I want to kick this over to you to get started. Have you read any sort of reviews or, or, or write-ups about the populism of Star Wars, or, or what is your take on why this movie is so different tonally than the rest? I guess just uh, this sense that uh, the Force is not tied into your family lineage that you can uh it's almost like the force has become the american dream that you you can uh you can pursue it on your own and find it or it maybe it finds you not based on who your mom or dad is it doesn't belong to the jedi uh-huh that it's not uh doesn't belong to anyone and i i think that's a pretty good way of looking at the world I, I really love what you just said. The force is the American dream. I feel like you could write an article about that <laughs> just to give you an idea. <laughs> I'll beat you to it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you have, um, you have the dismantling of inheritance that kind of started in the force awakens where we, we got Ray, a, a girl from nowhere. Um, you know, she, she basically says, um, I am from nowhere. I am nothing. And this gets calcified in this movie. Um, in the dynamic between Ray and Kylo, um, the lightsaber scene where it's sort of pulling between Ray and Kylo and it splits in half and it just sort of erupts in this, you know, big, beautiful fountain of light. You know, it's, it sort of seems to me like the force has said, I'm sort of done with this push and pull between these forces. Like, right. I don't know. It's, it's like the force because it has a will and we have to remember that the force has a will is backing away from this dynamic that has been caught in, which has been a, a trail of destruction that has lasted 40 years. I'm curious if it's trying to democratize itself by, by tapping Ray to disrupt the cycle. I mean, that could be. I can't speak for the force. <laughs> I think it's in a, if it has a consciousness, it is unknowable. But I think um, it's sort of, because the force is like freedom. What is freedom want? Like, I don't know that there's any consciousness behind that. It's just a, it's just a, a strength. It's a type of power that's out there. And uh, you tap into it or you don't. You, I think you, uh, you believe in it by encouraging it in others. Um, and I also like the idea that the force is fostered by life, right? That, um, that Yoda took sanctuary on Dagobah because it was a swamp and there was so much life around him. 
bugs and snakes and trees and moss and uh, and fish and uh, just uh, so much flora and fauna that that it almost uh, nourishes Yoda with this um, power of the Force. The Force is within life, and I think that is uh, that's a nice metaphor. You know that yeah he's he's outside of the ivory yeah. ivory tower right of of the jedi and sort of walled off in a in a circular chamber of of privilege and power which the jedi sort of mm. embodied uh they were this yeah this order dedicated yeah. to protecting the force and and then we saw this in, in and, the then yoda, Palpatine. and then yoda becomes henry david thoreau <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the tricky thing about like what Palpatine said to Anakin in the opera house in episode three, where he sort of dismantled the idea that the Jedi have a right to the galaxy, that they've gotten too big and powerful. We know that his his intent is malicious. In many ways, he is that dark side of populism. He he sort of thinks that he also represents the people of the galaxy who don't need to be under the thumb of a, an elite Jedi order. But he's gonna use he's right. gonna use it for ill, right? Um, but he was speaking a truth, which is that the Jedi have monopolized the idea of good and righteousness. And Luke right. in this movie movie, The Last Jedi, it seems he read the reviews in The Last Jedi or of, of the prequels, <laughs> which is so funny because like his, his spiel on uh, on Octo about the Jedi, I thought was funny because it does seem like he, he like actually got it from someone's tweets <laughs> and then delivered it to Rey. And it seems like with the Jedi in The Phantom Menace in uh, the prequel trilogy, they were just so disassociated from really feeling anything, from really engaging with the rest of the galaxy. And that's what, and what George Lucas intended with the character of Qui-Gon Jinn was to have someone who actually engaged with the living beings of the galaxy and understood that all life is sacred and that everyone should be given a chance. You know, like, for example... A character I personally don't like really much, but Jar Jar is meant to represent that. He's meant to represent, hey, even this, quote, pathetic life form is worth saving and is connected to the grander scheme of things that is the Force. But it is also ironic how Qui-Gon was the one to bring the, quote, chosen one who is, like, the most special and, like... Uh, it sort of like seems a bit contradictory if that's what George Lucas was intending. I don't know if Anthony, if you could like illuminate me on this, like what George Lucas's um, sort of intent was with that. I, I mean, I can't speak for, for George. <laughs> you know, I can only offer my own interpretation. I don't like that. Qui-Gon, I, I like that he was sort of a, a rebel in a way to use a loaded phrase in the star Wars galaxies that he was, sort of uh, looking to break some of the boundaries that the rigid Jedi order had put into place. And I think it's pretty subversive of George to make the Jedi uh, aloof, you know, closed off and a bit elite, you know, I don't like that term elite either. Elite and populism (laughs) misused on one hand. It's good to be elite. Obama is elite. He's a freaking genius. You know, he's a brilliant man. Uh, eloquent speaker and an empathetic individual. And if that's not something to aspire to, I don't know what is. But um, elite and aloof are not the same. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we get that when, when it comes to the idea of experts governing our society, um, you know, that, you know, sci- scientists and professors um, and people, you know, who have studied issues, um, you know, like political divides or health and the effects of fast food. Like if you criticize people's fast food habits because you know it's literally bad for them, that like you're out of touch with working America because that's the food they eat. Well, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to crit- criticize you because you don't have financial access to organic food. I'm, I'm just saying it's factually not good for you. But that could, that's a whole other side tangent. But you mentioned the idea of you know trampling the common mansoir, and that's sort of like embodied a little bit in, in the way that we see Jar Jar getting caught up in things. Like let's talk about the caretakers, right? The caretakers on Octo, and this was sort of um, noted in the Vulture piece by Abraham Reisman. They sort of embody a group of people who are just trying to do their work, and these force users keep destroying everything that they are doing. And it's sort of a perfect microcosm of what's going on in the entire galaxy with what's going on with taking care of the Jedi monuments on Octo. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I do. That um, most, And I think that's true of most people. Most people are not into politics at, at a deep level. You know, they have their lives to live and, and it's not that they're apathetic or unengaged. It's just... Uh, frankly, I, I like not having to dwell so much on politics. It's just when you feel threatened or that there's a crisis, you're more focused on it. And um, most people just want to go about their lives and they want things to run well and they'll think about it at election time and and then everybody just do their job and do their best. And I think like that's what these sort of other denizens of the galaxy are like, okay, well, you have these parties, the Sith and the Jedi battling it out. But like, But really, like, I just have to worry about where I'm going to eat and whether my starship has enough fuel, you know? Yeah, totally. And, and in a lot of ways we see that with Canto bite, it's that, um, you know, like uh, not necessarily that the elites there represent the uh, denizens of the galaxy, but rather they just convey how life really goes on for everyone else. And that if they can make uh, some business out of this galactic conflict, they're going to, and you see, also in Canto Bay, uh, some of the children workers in this father stables and them being inspired by our heroes to effectively, yeah, to effectively yeah. rise up and to, uh, and even and Anthony, you're right. Like calling it necessarily populist may not be the best thing, but it's empowering. Like I feel like we need to have a different sort of term that means empowerment to the common man. That's not populism because populism. Well, what I've heard, yeah. the phrase I've heard that I like is democratizing the force, which reminds me of what we did in the United States with actual democracy. That it began as this thing: a few uh, wealthy landowning men white men <laughs> held the power to vote. And then uh, gradually over time, you've added uh, more and more people till the point where everyone has the right to vote. Everyone who isn't a uh, victim of some sort of voter suppression, uh, which we see more and more of today. So um, yeah, democratizing the vote, democratizing the force. You know, I like the way I like the way that the entire dynamic was sort of put um, in quote by Kylo Ren, where he says, "You have no place in this story." Um, he tells her, you know, with just such incredible bluntness, you know, "You come from nothing. You are nothing. You don't belong here." And I, we we were supposed to learn something from that, and we we're supposed to learn something from the young broom boy as well, which is that. 
you know, this, the force, the, the power to rise and make a difference is in all of us. And it, you don't have to be a Skywalker. I, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that this was never the message of Star Wars to begin with. Um, and, and that sort of George Lucas accidentally made like a, a um, a, not a, I'm dra- grabbing the wrong, a monarchal version of the way that the force would be used. Um, but we're going to come around that to a couple minutes. So uh, let's talk about Canto Bite. Um, we did our last episode on this, so I want to try to hone in on a little bit of something different um, with Rose and, and her presence there. She takes Finn on this mission to Canto Bite. We see the wealth and opulence and sort of um, gross underbelly of, of vulture capitalism, I guess, that you could say in the galaxy. And Finn is taken into it. He loves it. He, he's like, oh my gosh, it's beautiful. I All this gold, this stuff, people are beautifully dressed. And maybe it comes from his lack of experiences in the world because, I mean, he's just sort of come out of um, being a brainwashed soldier in the Forced Order. He doesn't really know much about anything. And this sequence exists to ground Finn a little bit. And it's sort of there to ground the audience as well. Um, it, 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 I, I don't know what to think about Rose and her experience. Like, is she a class warrior? Does she hate the rich or does she just hate what the rich have done um, to get their wealth? Do y'all have a, an opinion on that? No, Rose doesn't hate the rich. She hates people who exploit other human beings or in Star Wars. Uh, other beings <laughs> have to be human. Um, I thought, uh, I never thought, got the sense that she hated the rich. She hated exploiters and, uh, and warmongers and war profiteers. She hated the uh, quote unquote inhuman elements of the rich. Those who allowed greed to overtake their empathy. Um, but uh, I never got the sense that she just, hating the rich sounds like some kind of envy and no, I, I never got that sense from her whatsoever. Um, yeah. And I, I'm glad, I'm glad you agree in that, in that sense. Cause I don't think she did either, but th- there's sort of like this right wing reaction on the internet, you know, where like the, any sort of people in, in bow ties and tuxedos cast in a bad light is some sort of call to class warfare, right? Well, we do. We do need class warfare. We need, uh, uh, because I do feel like the the extremely wealthy in the United States and, and elsewhere have uh, have hurt the country, have hurt the world economy by being greedy hoarders. And um, you just need to look at CEO pay now compared to uh, thirty or forty years ago to see how how that exploitation happens. Yeah, I mean, but I don't know. Yeah. That it's not necessarily about hate. It's about fairness. Totally, it's about just having a certain rules of the system that do guarantee that everyone is able to pursue the American dream, that everyone is able to pursue the force and that sense of freedom. And often, especially in our modern politics, it is like framed in this, uh, you know, like about class warfare. I think I'm like kind of mixed on it, like about whether it's a term to be used or, 
I think that what we just need generally is just more of an acknowledgement about how the system has effectively failed or is currently failing the middle class. And, you know, in the mid 20th century, the middle class was seen as like this gold standard and such a really great thing. And now people can actually pursue their interests and their desires in a market economy. But as income inequality is increasing, increasing by the day, by the minute, it feels like, I feel like we're really in sort of a crisis mode right now for the middle class. And what Star Wars and Rose's story is able to remind us is that, and you know, I'm glad we all agree here that Rose doesn't hate rich people. She hates exploiters. She hates those who are cheating in the system to uh, put others down and not let them pursue the American dream or not in the grander scheme of things, allow them to pursue the freedom of the force. And it's a sort of like a cautionary tale against that. And I feel like, I feel like George Lucas wanted to make this point with the, his like, a, with the, maybe with the original trilogy and maybe with the prequels, at least he wanted the subtext to be there, but it just wasn't really. And actually, well, obviously, especially the prequels are a deeply cynical tale of how things can go wrong, but exploitation, maybe exploitation by the political elite, but not really by an economic elite. And I feel like overall, it just could have been executed better. Yeah. Anthony, kind of to that point, do you find it surprising or um, like odd that George Lucas, who probably believes all of the things that we saw politically in The Last Jedi, did not make that kind of of series uh, and that he sort of made a series of Star Wars that had to be rebuffed in this way by Ryan Johnson? I don't see. I mean, I, I don't know. Rebuffed makes it sound like there's something wrong with it. Um, no. No, I, I don't. I don't see it that way because we're projecting sort of broad political theories on a fairly intimate story. You know, I interviewed George a few years back uh, when Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out, the Indiana Jones movie, and, and I was yeah. intrigued by the idea of fatherhood in his films because here you had Indiana Jones discovering he's a father in the Last Crusade. You had um, his father. Uh, played by Sean Connery in Temple of Doom. He was sort of like surrogate dad to short round. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, the Star Wars films are all about, uh, you know, a, a, the original trilogy, fa- father and son story, you know, and, and then we learned a father and, and daughter story as well. Um, but I thought I was really interested in this and, and I was asking him about his relationship with his own father. And I knew George had adopted three kids and, was a dad himself, and he was telling me about his dad, George Sr., who had founded a, a office supply company in um, Northern California, and um, you know started out small and actually built a pretty healthy business selling copy machines and paper and office supplies. And by the time his son came of age, he he wanted George to join him and help run this business. Uh, that he built from the ground up and George wanted to race cars and then he wanted to make movies. And the father was just so disappointed in him. <laughs> and as he's telling me this story, I'm like, right. wait a minute. So this is join me and together we will run the office supply galaxy of Northern California. <laughs> and George was like, yeah, yeah, basically that's what it was. And you realize that whether he intended to or not, he was making a story on a very small scale into a galactic story. 
So, right. and I think that's how all of these things play out. We are all individuals and we all have our own experiences that shape us. It's just that we all have very similar experiences and that's what builds a movement or a belief system. And I think, and I think you look at, you know, so when I look at the, uh, at the, uh, at the original trilogy, I don't see something that needs to be rejected. I see what, what Ryan is doing with the, the last Jedi is expanding upon it and saying, yes, this is a story that doesn't just affect the Skywalker family. It's one that uh, is, is true of all of these different people and all of these different beings throughout the galaxy that, that everybody has a connection to the force. And it just so happens that he's, you know, telling this one story of a, of a powerful family, but not really. Luke's, Luke and uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru, those aren't, those aren't rich people. They're not connected so much to Darth Vader and the power structure of the galaxy. They're just schmoes, you know, eking out in existence, sucking a little moisture out of the sand of Tatooine. So, um, uh, you know, I, 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 feel like, uh, I, I feel like it was a story of nobodies. I actually think um, in uh, Kurt Vonnegut in one of his novels, I, I can't remember now if it's Slaughterhouse-Five, that the aliens are talking to Billy Pilgrim. And they say, we like your Jesus story, except we have a little problem with the ending where, <laughs> where they crucify this guy and they find out, oh, he is God's son. Like we, he's basically the, the aliens were like, this is the story of, uh, oh, we crucified the wrong guy <laughs> and uh, we should never have done that. And he said, instead, the way we think the story should go is here's this preacher. He's talking about equality and fairness for everybody. And the Romans nail him up to the cross. And just before he dies, the sky opens up. And instead of God coming down and saying, this was my son, you basically killed an undercover operative. Like, instead, God comes down and says, I'm adopting this nobody as my son. <laughs> and uh, and, he, and, uh, and it, this is a message to all of you that if you kill a nobody, or you torture or mistreat a nobody, that you may very well find yourself on my bad side, and uh, and I and I find that to be sort of more like the Luke Skywalker story is that um, uh, he turns out to have been connected, uh, but he rose up despite those connections being broken. So, uh, so yeah. you know, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned all of that, particularly um, you know that that the idea that it's a, a rebuff should should sort of be rejected a little bit because I, I that reminds me of like Cass Sunstein's book The World According to Star Wars where he made the the co- living constitution versus originalism argument about the constitution in regards to Star Wars where he was like Star Wars is a ever evolving tale and philosophy and in many ways if you look at the evolution of Star Wars politics and worldview the same way you look at the constitution you'll find out that you're a living constitution person not an originalist and not a burn it all down and throw it out um, you know like you might get with an anti-government type like it is a document that has has guided us and done well but there's more to be done rather than just scrap the entire thing and and also reception to it and interpretation of it you know through the decades i mean i love that analogy of star wars being a living constitution because there are so many different interpretations of it and it has been ever evolving. And Anthony, I love like, uh, those, uh, that story you told me, or yeah, that interview with George Lucas, because you're absolutely right. Like really what Ryan is doing is simply adding on to that constitution. And I, 
I feel like I can now see the story of Luke Skywalker as being another, quote, nobody um, whose dad happened to be famous. But again, he grew up as a humble, poor moisture farmer and in a way like that's how he ended his life, like as a a farmer, basically a farmer on like this remote island. But it also makes me realize and understand how, you know, George never intended any of like this of this notion of a force monarchy or a hierarchy of the force. And, you know, I was talking the other day with a friend about midichlorians and like it setting up this, uh, again, like tears of how powerful you are in the force. But George Lucas didn't do that. Like it was really fandom. It was really fandom who took this concept and said, oh, that must mean there's so, someone who's more powerful in the force or, oh, only Luke and Leia can save the galaxy because they're so powerful in the force. And one really, no, I mean, it was the galaxy as a whole. It was the, re- it was the rebel alliance that defeated the empire, uh, you know, in Return of the Jedi and later on at the Battle of Jakku, as we see in the Aftermath books. So because we're so invested in these specific characters, we just tend to put on that label of, oh, they're the, they're the, to take a quote from the Lego movie, they're the special. They're the only ones who can really save it. But now we have another nobody, Ray, who is exceptionally powerful in her own right and maybe more powerful than Luke and Darth Vader, who like is really just a kind, humble, and incredibly compassionate person who is the one to ensure that everyone has access to the freedom of the force, especially as we see with broom kid at the end of the uh, last Jedi. Y'all, I think this is a perfect place to wrap our conversation on populism and the last Jedi, the people's star Wars. Um, it's all a good reminder, particularly this last bit with, you know, sort of George Lucas and, and his intent about, you know, uh, the story that he was telling and then sort of how we're telling it now, you know, sometimes these populist ideas and populist visions, again, they end up sort of being monarchical. Like there's so much accidental, um, uh, accidental politics that happens sometimes with the the rise of a, a young nobody from nowhere. Um, we always have to be vigilant. We always have to be aware and uh, and think about these terms um, such as populism. So I really appreciate um, Anthony Bresnikan for coming on today. Anthony, it was so nice to talk to you and hear your take on all this. I think it added a whole lot to the conversation. Cool. cool. I'm glad to do it. I think it's uh, always fun to talk about our world and the galaxy far, far away. They match up and disconnect in lots of interesting ways. Where can people find all of your work and get connected with you personally? I'm over at Entertainment Weekly, EW.com, and uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Bresnikan, at B-R-E-Z-N-I-C-A-N. Folks, do that. Follow Anthony Bresnikan and, uh, and learn everything you need to know about Star Wars going into the future. Anthony, thanks so much, and have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care, guys. Well, that was an excellent conversation with Anthony Bresnikan. I feel like I learned a lot out of that. And that's what I love about doing this show. Like you get to think about things from a different perspective you hadn't considered before. And yeah, I really love that. And now we move on to our legendary Bantha Fodder segment where Stephen and I just talk about whatever is on our mind, politics, Star Wars or otherwise. Stephen, what's on your mind? In, in next week's episode, 
um, the interview episode of Beltway Banthas, I talked to Stu Bergeri, who hosts or co-hosts, excuse me, the Glenn Beck radio show. So he's kind of like his uh, his side anchor. And he asked me for my take on Snoke being in two pieces on the floor midway through the movie. And what I devised on the spot was that The Last Jedi presents us with a movie full of fakes. Um, Kylo Ren is exposed as a fake by Snoke. Um, Luke is pulling the veil back on Jedi worship and you know, kind of calling it all fake. And you know, Snoke is a fake in his own right as the big bad of the new trilogy. And so I was thinking today about fakery. And then I saw um, a piece that I thought kind of played really nicely into this. And it goes basically like this. So we have our own problem in the world today with fakery. And it really challenges some of the ways I'm supposed to think politically in terms of my libertarian classification. And it's the problem of fake social media followings, bots and astroturf, um, something that you see at the heart of the Russian, uh, the Russia 2016 meddling story. And the New York Times did a feature article on this called The Follow factory, focusing on a company called Duvani that sells followers to anyone with the money and desire to influence online and appear popular. One of my number one gripes on social media is the ratio debate. It's, uh, it goes something like, uh, the quality of your thought or input is only as good as the retweets and likes you get versus your debate partner. It's truly nonsense, and it absurd. It, it cer- asserts this uh, idea that support of the majority makes you right, which is just effing crazy. And in some cases, it's worth asking how much of it is even real. And people buy endorsements on LinkedIn. They they buy listens on SoundCloud. Uh, they struggling actors will buy followers on Twitter to impress. Producers. And then you have to wonder why we have so many rotten talents that rise to the top of the social ladder. And so all of this uncertainty ties into so much of our political discourse today, like as Congress is mulling over social media regulations, um, something I'm ideologically supposed to oppose in favor of market solutions. And I find myself unconvinced that there is no government role here. There are a variety of proposals circulating through Congress, and each one should be scrutinized in the interest of protecting real individual speech and freedom of thought. But sensible regulation could exist that prohibits the automation, the automation of political rancor in the online space for malevolent purposes. Like I'll even offer a fringe example. I think Richard Spencer should be allowed on Twitter. I think his account should be checked blue and verified so you know who he is and what he is saying. But I do not think that he should be able to wield a bot army to harass and overinflate his voice over others who might oppose him. The social media age has connected all of us, making us like uncomfortably close with strangers and friends, and really has revolutionized civil society in a time span that I think has done a great deal of harm to public health and sense of well-being. Facebook is finally owning up to this and taking steps to retool their platform's priorities and procedures. And I think we actually have a moral and constitutional ground to guard ourselves from further social experiments by these companies. And that's why we have a government. It's not to protect the rights of Russian trolls and shady companies that steal your identity and use your likeness to pollute public discourse. Sorry, I'm a bad libertarian. Please forgive me, Hayek. 
please forgive me, Ron Paul. Um, but I, that's the way I feel. I think that there's a, a role to be played here. And I, I hope that we come towards a, a constructive solution in the years ahead. Suara, what is, what is on your mind? My mind is on the DACA dreamers. They are still living in a state of terror of being deported by ICE agents or other sort of immigration officials. And during the government shutdown, as many will recall, the argument uh, by many on the progressive left was over like shutting the government down in order to ensure that we have, (coughs) excuse me, in order to ensure that we have a deal for DACA recipients and for other dreamers in this country, that we have a DREAM Act passed so that people who were brought here when they were children will not have to fear being deported somewhere somewhere they don't speak the language or they don't know the culture, where they don't know the country, where they don't know the people. And make no mistake that this is a crisis, that 800,000 people are at risk of deportation, that America, effectively American people who are simply undocumented are about to be pulled out of the only home they've ever known. And I know that I've been sort of going back and forth on everything that's happened since the uh, 48-hour government shutdown. And Looking at, I've been looking at the takes of Democrats, quote, caving in to making a deal that, um, you know, that we have to rely on Mitch McConnell to get a vote on the Senate floor about a DREAM Act on February 8th. What we got was a continuing resolution. So effectively, if Democrats and uh, Republicans who don't agree on a deal feel like the government is uh, think that if they can't get to a deal and the government is still shut down, that is still a concrete possibility. And, you know, in a way that leverage is still there. And I also want to say that Democrats do not take shutting the government down anywhere near lightly and that there are people who are receiving services, who are in desperate need, rely on the government for so many things, and that none of this is like in jets, but like I said before, right now we have a crisis. So I understand the frustration on, in general, in the Democratic base for Democrats not holding their ground. Maybe we should have held our ground further so that we could have gone some sort of better deal for the Dreamers. Maybe we could have gone it in just a couple of days or so. And again, I'm going back and forth. And I think that Schumer maybe should have waited a little bit longer, that he should have taken a bolder stance in order to force Mitch McConnell and the Republicans to get a better deal. But ultimately, I don't know. I don't know the specific internal dynamics of what's happening. But I can tell you, though, that the optics look terrible. It looks like Democrats put up a weak fight that they gave in after just a couple of days and out of fear, excuse me, out of fear that they're the ones that are going to be blamed for the shutdown. And it's just, I, I really just don't know what to feel about this because Again, shutting the government down is not something that should ever be taken light, been taken lightly. And, but at the same time, it is this crisis with the dreamers. So I feel like in general, we need to keep our focus on the ball in this game. It, it, the, game the game is protecting the dreamers and the ball is effectively the next vote at the end of this continuing resolution that will end February 8th. We can... If we work hard, if we persevere, if we win the argument, get something on the table that will protect dreamers. And I'm even willing to have us put some funds to the side for a border wall. Honestly, it's something that like, like 
sickens me to my core. And like the first time I heard that during the election, I was like, what is this sort of crazy, like, uh, sort of America first scheme that separates us further from the rest of the world. But if it is to save almost a million people from deportation, then maybe it's something we need to consider. And I think like just my message generally to like my fellow people on the left is understand that no matter what your feelings are about the democratic party right now and what we've been through in the past couple of weeks, focus on helping and saving the dreamers. They need our help. This is a crisis and a fodder. All right. Thank you so much, Suara. Um, I, I just always love doing this segment. It's uh, it's really great to hear what's on your mind this week and uh, just let it all hang out, man. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Now we got to pivot over to uh, listener reviews. We have a new one here from Jimmy Page Guitar Pod. He says, five stars, Star Wars and politics. They do a great job at representing both sides of traditional American politics, left and right, in a very open and friendly setting. Great podcast. Thank you, Jimmy Page. Great review. Um, and then Kay Cedor writes, making pop culture relevant. Five stars. This review is long overdue. Suara and Steven are the masters of connecting Star Wars to current events. And they do so in a way that is thoughtful and nuanced, but also fun. Who says life doesn't imitate pop culture? Certainly not the Banthas. Oh, thank you so much, KC Dor. We really appreciate that. Just want to give a shout out. Thank you both of you for your uh, very kind reviews. But KC Dor is Kate Cedor, one of the hosts of the Book Wars podcast. They are excellent. You guys should go check them out. And uh, yeah, they're amazing. Just want to say that. <laughs> and today's show is brought to you by our friends on Patreon. Isaiah Leslie, Cheston Lee, Andy Siener, Lynn Walker, Connie Shee, BJ Smith, Justin J. I always say Justin J. Justin J. <laughs> Jessica Shitara, Sarah Smith, Jared Cantor, Tish Wells, Sean Mahan, and Nick DeCalandria. Thank you so much for being patrons of Beltway Banthas. And to find out how you can be a patron yourself, go on over to patreon.com slash Beltway Banthas. And you can find out about getting involved with the show at the $1, $5, $10, or actually $8 level as well. Uh, and there are all sorts of really cool perks. Uh, my favorite perk is just for donating $1 a month to Beltway Banthas, you get our legendary Bantha Banter segment where Suara and I debate an issue in Star Wars and politics that we don't talk about on the show. Because Suara, we keep it pretty friendly on the show, don't we? Yeah, we keep it friendly for the most part. Yeah, you know, we try yeah. not to like duke it out too much about like what's really like out, like driving the news. But you and I have very strong diverging opinions. You know, I am I am on the opposite end of you. And so we don't bring that into the show outside of like, you know, Star Wars. Yeah. Um, but we do disagree. And so yeah. in this segment that we put out to patrons every month, Swar and I have it out for a couple of minutes and, uh, we think it's fun and we, and you know what? We still shake hands and, and hug it out at the end of the day. Yeah. Despite being a Democrat and Republican, we don't actually hate each other. Like the media tells us we're supposed to, but seriously, Bantha banter is a really great space for us to do that, to really duke out like some of our differences in a, still a very friendly setting with acknowledgement of like the best intentions in each other. And you know, like 
not Twitter, because Twitter is the worst place for arguments. Don't argue on Twitter. Because <laughs> you're either going to ruin your friendship with someone who you deeply care about, or you're going to spend five hours arguing with a Russian bot. Uh, none of those are ideal outcomes for your life. Um, that brings us to the end of today's show. This has been The People Star Wars. We really hope you enjoyed this episode featuring Anthony Bresnikin. Do follow him on Twitter at Bresnikin. You can follow me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen with a PH underscore Kent. 89. Suara, where can people find you? You can follow me on Twitter at SuaraSaleh1. That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H-1. And uh, you can also check out this Facebook group I've got called Sounds from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. We discuss John Williams, Michael Giacchino, and everything in Star Wars and music. It's a lot of fun. And follow Beltway Banthas on Twitter at Beltway Banthas and on Facebook. Uh, we're always engaging with people there, talking about Star Wars politics and sharing some of the latest. And you can find out more about our podcast family and network at RetroZap.com. The RetroZap Podcast Network is a, a great network of shows you should check out. Um, and with that, I think we are officially at the end of this week's show. We'll be back next week with an interview with Stu Bergeri of the Glenn Beck Program about Star Wars fandom and The Last Jedi. And until then... May the force be with you. Always.